Welcome to the Namely Marley podcast. My name is Marley. Today's guest is Victoria Moran, holistic health coach, life coach, and author of over 10 motivational and life-changing books. Victoria, the theme of, of my blog this month is to talk about strength and how, how it is that uh, people, when they make these New Year's resolutions, can actually uh, find the way to follow through on it. <laughs> and I know that you're a life coach, so you see this all the time. I'm, I'm curious, what are some of the typical struggles you see with people dealing with their goals? Well, I think it's all about how much we care about ourselves and how much we think we're worth. Because taking care of yourself takes energy it takes commitment. It takes a willingness to go through some discomfort. And unless you really, really think you're worth it, you're just not going to do it. I mean, I know this with myself. I've been doing this for years and years and years. I write books about it. I give talks about it. And there are times when treating myself well is the hardest thing I have to do all day. So it's really about self-worth. That's a valuable point, and I do think that's something that I, at least personally, have a tendency to forget about, to put myself first. Well, we need to do that, and we also need to give ourselves a break and kind of trust that sometimes we really do know what we need. So often, we get so educated with other people's ideas that we think that what that person says is right, and then we read what somebody else says, and we think, oh, no, no, now this person is right. Yeah. And then the third person comes along, that one's right. But how about you're right, and you always were? So I'll give you an example from my own life in terms of, of food. I'm very attracted to raw food, and I have to say when I do it in the spring and the summer and the fall, I feel fantastic. I feel very light. I feel very energized. But when I keep it up on into the winter when it gets cold, it just doesn't work for me. And so I've tried for a few years to plow through. Like, I'm going to do it this winter. I'm going to come in and I'm going to take a sauna and then I'm going to make dinner. You know what? My body happens to need some warmth in the winter. It doesn't matter what somebody writes a book about. This is the truth for me. So when you feel drawn to something, unless it's absolutely dangerous and wretched, maybe it really is okay for you. So I'm of the mind that you need to give yourself a break and give yourself some ease around the whole thing. I was talking to a wonderful trainer at my gym. wish he was my trainer. He said, the best discipline is no discipline. In other words, when you can get yourself to the point of wanting to treat yourself well, then you don't have to force yourself to treat yourself well. I see. It's, it's like a habit. It's not something you have to think about. It, it's the idea, years and years ago, when I was struggling with compulsive overeating and I was really overweight in my early 20s, hated myself. It was a terrible time of my life. <sighs> and wandering around looking for some kind of answer, I wandered into a Christian science reading room. The man there was very kind, very patient, and very wise. And he was telling me about prayer and about the Christian science belief that we're all perfect as we are and we just need to accept that and live in that way. And I was getting very, very impatient. And I just said, but what about healthy eating? <sighs> he said, well, healthy people tend to do healthy things. And I've never forgotten that in all these years. 
healthy people do healthy things. That makes all kinds of sense. It's the same with being happy. If you're happy and fulfilled and on the track that you want to be on in life, then chances are you're going to be a nice person, easy to get along with, able to make some time to help somebody else out. When if you're frustrated and angry and unfulfilled, nobody better ask you for any favors. So you want to have a life that has a certain amount of structure so you have some safety there, but also a certain amount of elasticity so that you can live life and experience all the pleasures and all the nuances. That's what you came here to do. Yeah, that's very, very, that'd be a good mantra. And it, it kind of leads me to um, another another point, and that is a lot of times I may be enjoying something I'm eating, and it's so easy to overindulge, and then I feel miserable afterwards. Well, you want to be aware when it comes to overeating in particular, I mean, there's so many pleasures on this earth that are ours to enjoy, but up to a point. And you want to make love to your own true love. You don't want to go out and pick up sailors. You want to take an aspirin if your head is hurting you, but you don't want to get addicted to oxycodone. You know, there are, there are kind of degrees of, of, of these things. And with food, it's supposed to be wonderful and it's supposed to be delicious, but it's not supposed to solve the problems of life. Mm-hmm. And that's where it gets to be a problem. Because if you're aware of yourself and your needs and, and you're aware of your surroundings and you're not eating to procrastinate, to push something off, to push something away, to press down feelings, then you're going to know, you know what? This was so delicious, but I have really had enough. Now, I happen to come from a history of compulsive overeating, and I've been through so many of the phases and and stages of that, and I've been very blessed to be in, in recovery for 28 years now. But even in recovery, I'm still a compulsive eater, and I can still say that I absolutely love the process of eating. Now, people come to this in different ways. Some people say, it's not that I love eating so much, I'm just addicted to sugar or or flour or, or something else. And if I get a hold of that kind of food, then I just can't stop. That's one way people manifest it. For me, it was never really a food, although I certainly preferred concentrated foods. You know, it takes a long time to get a fix from celery. But for me, it's the process of eating, tasting, chewing, swallowing, picking up the fork and getting another bite. That's sedating to me. It's very, very calming. So what I need to do so that I can enjoy my food but not use it as a drug is to find other ways to be calm and to bring serenity into my life. Now, I also at different times in my life had a problem with caffeine that I would use it as as a pick-me-up. I've written 11 books now, and I remember saying somewhere around book six or seven, I don't think I could write a whole book and not get into caffeine at at some point to just give me that little sort of extra boost, that little extra lift. I remember talking to somebody once and saying, I just wish regular life were as good as life on caffeine. And he said, hmm, 
cocaine addicts say that they wish regular life could be as good as life on cocaine. It was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) this is a drug widespread and legal, but what I need if I don't want to be partaking of that is another way to feel alive, alert, and enthusiastic. One way to do that, of course, is get enough sleep at night. And another way is not to expect life to be super vivid. Regular vivid is good enough. I love your book. Um, let's see, the love, is it the love diet? Love that, powered love diet. Powered diet. <laughs> yeah. I tell you, I, I, you even talk in there about this, this concept of eat the way you truly believe is best for you. That's a quote. Mm-hmm. That's like knowing because, yourself. Exactly. And, and you're the biggest expert and you may know something tomorrow that you don't know today and then you'll be responsible for that knowledge and you can make choices based on that, but you don't know it yet. So today you're only responsible for what you know now. I always tell people about how when I got started on this path of recovery from killing myself with food, I would go to lunch. I was living in Kansas City at the time, and we had a big Macy's store downtown in those days. They had a lovely tea room, and I would sometimes take myself there for lunch when I was having a good day and was really feeling like I was going to do the right thing by myself. And my standard lunch would be a piece of quiche and a glass of white wine. And I look back on those times, and I don't need any of that stuff anymore. I mean, I don't drink wine just because I don't feel good when I do. I don't have any moral problem with anybody else drinking it. It just kind of gives me a headache, and I don't feel right with it. I don't eat quiche because I'm a vegan now, so I don't eat the cheese or the eggs. I'd rather not have a pie crust with all those hydrogenated oils in them. And if I were going to have a pie crust, it would probably be something raw made out of wonderful nuts and dates or whatever. So none of that stuff that I ate then do I eat now. And yet, at the time, whenever I went there and I had my quiche and my glass of wine, I felt like, you're cool. You are running with the big dogs now. You're having a beautiful, moderate, sophisticated lunch and then going back to work. So that was the kind of thing that started me on the path so that I don't have to eat for a fix today. You know, that kind of reminds me of another quote that I wrote down from that book. It says, if you wait until you're thin to feel beautiful, you may never get there. Oh, no, you have to feel beautiful right now today. Yeah. And it has so little to do about the physical. It has to do with how you feel about yourself. A few years ago, I was um, down at the Russian and Turkish baths in the East Village in New York City. It's a place that's been around since 1892, and I don't think it's been remodeled since then. But it's for real die-hard health people, most of whom come from other countries where they really believe in the whole steam and sauna and massage deal. So these are people that will heat themselves up and then jump in an icy pool and actually act like they're enjoying it. (laughs) But the thing that really impressed me, I went there on a ladies' day. So on co-ed day, you have to wear robes in between your various treatments. But on ladies' day, you can just let it all hang out. And there were women there of every body shape and size, of every age, and they were so comfortable in their own skin that they were walking around totally in the buff, not feeling that they needed to hide anything because they were okay just as they were. And I remember thinking, this ought to be a required field trip for young women in eating disorders programs. 
that it's not about looking like the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. It's about being comfortable in your own skin. And if you do want to change it, if you do want to lose a few pounds or get a little more buff or whatever it is you want to do, you're in the perfect position for doing that. But you're not going to change anything when you hate yourself. It's sort of like if you go to your closet and you see some garment and you say, you know, I have always hated this dress. Why did I ever buy it? It looks wretched on me. You're going to put it in the trash or at least in the bag for goodwill. But if you're looking through your closet and you say, I've always liked this dress. You know, it's getting a little bit old. I think I need to maybe put some new buttons on it and maybe put some trim here or there, maybe alter this or that. But I love it, so I'm going to fix it. It's the same way when you treat yourself. If you just say I'm rotten and worthless, you're not going to do a thing for yourself, at least not for very long. But if you say, you know what, I am really worthy. I have always thought so much of myself, and now I need to do a little bit of trimming and fixing to get myself back to where I really like to be. It's an entirely different way of approaching things. I often find myself having this very negative self-talk, and I'm curious if that's kind of a, a human trend or something. You know, I think it's very American or maybe Western. I've traveled quite a bit in Asia, um, Tibet, Nepal, India, and some of these things that we just think of are normal, they don't even know what they are. Mm-hmm. I remember that they didn't know anything about the terrible twos that we talk about with little kids. They didn't know anything about teenage rebellion. That that mm-hmm. just was totally like, what, huh? What is that? And I remember that I was there when I was writing The Love Powered Diet and was explaining to people through a translator that I'd just written this book and I would try to say, it's for people who eat too much. And they thought I was joking and they'd laugh and they'd point at me and they'd laugh again. They'd say, eat too much, not possible, eat too much. (laughs) Because it's just not something that in those places people think about. So whether they have negative self-talk, I don't know. I just know that we need to give ourselves a break. And this is not to say that we want to indulge ourselves or let ourselves get by with being selfish or um, unkind or any of that sort of stuff. It's just we need to give ourselves a fighting chance, and then we can set standards for ourselves to live up to. Just don't make the standards perfection because you're not going to get there. Another one of your books that I I consider one of my favorites is Creating a Charmed Life. Oh, thank you. Mine too. I love it. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good one to read when you're having a day that you need a little, well, you know, maybe like a caffeine boost. (laughs) Charmed Life can be my caffeine. (laughs) That's good. I'll use it too. (laughs) But you, you know, I, I sometimes feel like there's a contradiction in my thought process when I think about this creating a charmed life versus living a disciplined life. Can you have both? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you must have both. Because if you're all over the place and you just wake up at any old time of day and eat any old kind of food and do whatever quality of work you feel like doing that day and doing something wretched the next day, you're not going to have a good life. So a certain amount of, of structure is absolutely required. In fact, the people that we admire the most have the most disciplined lives. They have financial success. 
they have well-behaved children, usually, although we can't control our children, so that's not a guarantee. But usually, if the family is a healthy place, they have good relationships, they look good, they take care of themselves, they tend to be healthy. I mean, again, we don't want to get ourselves in this thing of, oh, my God, I got sick, what did I do wrong? You know, maybe you didn't do anything wrong. Maybe it's just what you have to learn in this life. But generally speaking and overall, people who have a certain healthy discipline tend to have better lives. One thing that I've noticed in observing people is that people who get up early in the morning are more successful than people who don't. And always there are some people listening to a call like this will say, but I'm a night person. Well, you couldn't have been a night person before Thomas Edison because you would have tripped over the furniture. Mm -hmm. So what I see as I look out at successful people in the world, and I mean whether this is financial success or spiritual growth or whatever it is, the whole bunch of them seem to get up around 6 a.m. Some of them even get up earlier. So that is a discipline that obviously works for a lot of people. Exercise is another one. Now, I was a fat kid. I never warmed to exercise or even to play. And so the idea of moving my body and sweating to this day does not make me think, oh, wow, that's a whole lot of fun. Mm -hmm. But I do it anyway because I know that there's no way around it. If I want to stay young and fit and healthy and well, I'm going to have to get to the gym or, you know, whatever it is that that you do. I happen to go to a gym because when I'm there, there's nothing else to do but exercise, so I'll do it. So you have the basic functions that are important to you. Sometimes it's a good idea to come up. I call it the sacred seven. What are the seven simple activities that you personally, not anybody else, can come up with that make your day work. So for some people, it would be exercise, might be meditation. That's also a really good idea. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's doing some reading, either some reading that's going to further your career or teach you something that you want to learn or or help you along your spiritual path. A lot of people will put floss on there because that's something most people do at night, and at night it's easier to not do things you want to do because it's late (laughs) and you can say, oh golly, I'm tired. So whatever these things are, come up with your own sacred seven and it has to be your own. I can't give you a list because you're not me, but you've got your own. And the reason I keep it down to seven, you know, a lot of people just want to do, okay, I want to do this and this and this, and then I want to do this and then I want to jog for five hours and then I want to go to therapy for three, and then I want to be hypnotized, and, and it's like, oh, wait a minute, I don't have time to go to work. So you don't want to overdo on any of this stuff, but you do want to have those few little things that if you do them every day for, say, a year, what would your life be like? Come up with your seven and then envision your life if you did those every day for a year. It would be quite remarkable. Yeah, I know for my husband, it would be brushing his teeth. He he brushes his teeth after every meal, so he'll stop. So he'll stop eating? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a very good idea. Mm-hmm. Another friend of mine has a, a great plan for uh, closing the meal. I talk about this in my book, Fit From Within. She's a Protestant lady who had lost a whole lot of weight and was maintaining it and went to a Catholic Mass with a friend of hers. And she was so impressed that the way the Mass closes is with the priest saying, the Mass is ended, go in peace. 
So she took that as her after meals prayer, and she started saying, the meal is ended, I go in peace. I love that. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. Because then there's a period at the end of that sentence. (laughs) You've done the meal. That's great. Now you're going to go out and live for four or five or six hours, and then you're going to have another meal. (laughs) Yes. It doesn't mean you're never going to eat again. It just means you're done now. Yes. That's what I try to remind myself too as as I'm eating that I you know I get to have this again there's leftovers I'll I'll have this again tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things with people who are attached to food mm-hmm. that we do tend to think this is it. I think the same thing happens lots of times with money. Sometimes people get very stingy about money and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be smart with our money. But very often people will want a a bargain because they don't think they'll ever have any money again. Mm -hmm. And maybe with the bargain, they've wasted what they did have. So sometimes you need to be able to just rest a little bit and just trust that doing the right thing by yourself today is good and that this is not the last day of your life. This is not the last time you are ever going to have a good meal. This is not the last time you're ever going to get paid. It's just all coming. You know, sometimes I like to envision a hammock and the idea of just lying in a hammock completely supported. And that's how I feel spiritually, that we really, we have to get out there, obviously, and do what we have to do. We have to do the footwork and do our part. But if we can think that through it all, we're really being supported by God or angels or spiritual presence or however you want to see it, it just makes everything okay, and you can get through a lot of disappointments that way that you couldn't have gotten through before. Life works better. You know, you mentioned that you have 11 books, and I would love to talk to you about all of them. <laughs> but I think you have a 12th one coming out, don't you? Well, actually, it's my 11th that's it coming is your 11th. out. Yes, I, I just got the page proofs in today, which is the final final read so I won't get to see it again (laughs) until um, until it's published in April but it's already available for pre-order on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com and I didn't know how cheap those pre-order books are I'm going to start buying everything on pre-order because they're selling it for half price but anyway yeah it's very it's thrilling I guess publishers like to get the buzz going and I don't know I just know it's a great time to buy books and this one is called Main Street Vegan I was inspired by Main Street in Kansas City because I grew up just two blocks off Main Street. And the idea is that people who want to eat plant-based, who want to live a more compassionate life, are all kinds of people all over the place. And we have the idea that it's just celebrities and ex-presidents and maybe hippies. Mm -hmm. But it's not. It's anybody who wants to take really good care of themselves and live with compassion towards animals and and the planet and people who could use more to eat. So Main Street Vegan is um, very simple, very um, friendly. It's 40 prescriptive essays about every aspect of going plant-based at your own pace. And there are 40 recipes. There's a recipe after every chapter that kind of illustrates the point of the chapter. And it's really fun to come up with those 
Because obviously in the chapter about protein, it's going to be a recipe with a lot of protein in it. But then in the chapter about fashion, it's like, oh my gosh, what kind of recipe am I going to put here? So I got a wonderful recipe for um, a berry cobbler from a beautiful young woman named Leanne Maylie Hilgard, who is the designer for Vote Couture, which is a wonderful, gorgeous coat company that makes dress winter coats and jackets for women and men that are completely vegan, they're fair trade, they're made in America, they're ecologically sound, there's just everything right about them. And she gave me this great recipe. So I'm very, very excited about Main Street Vegan. We have some wonderful endorsements. We've got Russell Simmons and Moby (laughs) saying that they love this book. So I hope that your listeners will too. Excellent. Oh, I can't wait. And when is it going to be published? April 26th is its due date, but you can order it now on Amazon or BN.com. Oh, I'm going to have to go check that out. It sounds great. I, I, I love vegan recipes. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious, do you think that veganism is a weight loss tool? Well, it can be. In, in my case, I needed to recover on the spiritual and emotional level first. Mm-hmm. I, I was just looking for a way to use food as a drug. And I couldn't be vegan. I wanted to be vegan. I was vegetarian. But it was just so hard to not grab that junk food at the gas station or wherever I was. And at least at that time, it was pretty hard to be a vegan binge eater. You can do it now, but it's still hard. You have to go to the health food store (laughs) and get your stash. Um, But if, if you're not... An emotional eater, if you're not somebody who's, who's really got a, a problem with food as, as I did, then it's just fabulous. And even if you've got a, more of a food problem and you have to deal with the spiritual, psychological stuff in Overeaters Anonymous or some other way, then going vegan is still the best way to eat because you get to eat more of a quantity of food. It's simple math that fat has more than twice the calories of either protein or carbohydrate, and a vegan diet is low in fat, and it's high in fiber and and high in water. So when you think about beans and grains and vegetables, that's fiber. When you think about vegetables and fruits, that's water. And so... Those things are completely calorie-free, so you can really eat till you're satisfied. On the typical American diet, you can certainly eat moderately and modestly and exercise and all that, but that means you're literally watching your weight your entire life. And I don't watch anything today. I don't count anything. I just live, and I'm thin. It's really remarkable. I never believed that this would happen. And so many people say, well, yeah, but, you know, I turned 40 or whatever. Well, you know, I've turned 40, and I've turned 50, and it doesn't matter. You know, you you just keep going. So, yeah, it's a terrific way to eat. It's a terrific way to eat, to lose weight, to keep weight off. And to stay healthy, another thing that's so terrific about it, especially if you eat a whole food vegan diet. I mean, it is possible to be more of a junk food vegan, but if you really look into, you know, have, have healthy foods, lots of vegetables, colorful, fresh fruits. When you eat grains, eat them whole when, when you can. You know, obviously, sometime you're going to go out and have spaghetti and it's going to be white. But, you know, most of the time, if you're having the quinoa and the brown rice and whatever, you are just going to be so 
filled with nutrients. And so your body isn't going to be looking for them. If you've ever stood in front of the refrigerator and just stared in there, looking for whatever you're looking for, but you weren't quite sure what it is, well, chances are you were looking for some of the nutrients that you weren't getting in your diet. And when you eat a plant-based diet, you're just getting nutrients out the kazoo. It's really wonderful. The more colorful your plate, the better. I always tell people that your plate should look like a Christmas tree, mostly green with splashes of other bright colors. Hey, that's a perfect way to look at it. <laughs> and and you, I, for me personally, I think I end up feeling so much better. The energy oh. level, all of that's there. Well, you you feel amazing, and you also feel like you're just doing the best you can in the world and not everybody gets into this because of the animals but those who do once you know what goes on in the way that animals are raised and in the way they're slaughtered I spent a day in a slaughterhouse once Mm. and it completely changed my life and I know you can see video of that that's very powerful too but having actually gone there I didn't just see it I heard it I heard the screams. Mm. I smelled the smells. I felt the cold of working all day long in a refrigerator, which is what these poor people have Mm. to do. And these are the people at the lowest rung of the economic ladder. Nobody else will do that work. It has the highest turnover rate, the highest injury rate, according to OSHA, of any job in the country. And so for just a huge variety of reasons, I would just far rather eat vegetarian chili and (laughs) veggie dogs and veggie burgers and veggie burritos and great big giant salads and tofu stir fry and all these other wonderful things that I eat than eat animal products. And, you know, some people just say, you know what, I'm with you. I quit. And that's it. And they're those same kind of people that they can just put down cigarettes one day and that's just it. Or they can be in a bad relationship and as soon as they see, hey, wait a minute, this is a bad relationship. I'm out of here. And they don't even send the guy a text. I mean, they're just done. And then the rest of us, you know, we kind of go back (laughs) to kind of take our time. And so for some people, it's a process. It was a process for me. But wherever you are on the continuum, just you know, every day, just get a little bit closer to plant-based and you'll start to just feel so happy and then you'll be driving out in the country and you can look a cow in the eye. It'll be a great day. <laughs> and no guilt. No guilt. Now, you're originally from Kansas City and now I you am. live in New York. I do. Have you seen the New York Times article about the guy from New York who came to Kansas City? Yes, and you know oh. what? I, I was very close to that article because I was interviewed a week and a half ago by the New York Times travel section. And that article was supposed to be in that day, but his article got in instead. So so it's sort of like, okay, this is a blessing in disguise. They'll put in my article about traveling as a vegan closer to the time that the book comes out. So we're just going to let that go up into the atmosphere, let God take care of it. But yes, I did read the stories, a gentleman who was living in Kansas City and saying that he couldn't get food to eat. And he's just a vegetarian. He's yes. not even a vegan. Yeah. Well, I think he is just not looking in the right places. I think I so mean, too. Kansas City is a great place to eat as a vegetarian or vegan. I love it when I go there. Yeah. I, I love the Eden Alley 
I mm-hmm. love the food. I love the bluebird. I love all the ethnic places. You've got the best Ethiopian food in the country, in my opinion, down at the Blue Nile in the yeah. city market. I mean, I couldn't eat my way through Kansas City if I was there for six months. So yes. I don't know what he's talking about. There's also Blue Koi, which has some great... Oh, Blue Koi is excellent. And uh, Waldo Pizza has vegan pizza. Seriously. Yes. We're like a mecca of great vegetarian restaurants. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, most cities are. I understand that if you're out on an interstate somewhere and your choices are, you know, Wendy's, Burger King, and Taco Bell, right, it's even hard. there you can find something to eat. It's just yeah. it's not stellar. But, oh, I mean, there are great – I mean, I have found in, in Minneapolis, in, in Spokane, uh, in uh, Tulsa, I mean, all over mm-hmm. I've found great places to eat. So ethnic is the main thing. Now, you don't want to go into your local neighborhood Applebee's and expect anything wonderful because you're not going to find it. But go to a Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese place. Go to a Middle Eastern place, Italian, Mexican, Indian – there's just a wealth of great food to eat. You don't have to be hungry anywhere. I think it's good, especially in the beginning, to just kind of keep a little Lara bar in your bag or, you know, maybe a little trail mix or something so that you won't panic. So that if you end up someplace where all that you can eat is, you know, a little salad that isn't really, shouldn't even be called a salad because <laughs> it's too tiny and doesn't have enough stuff in it, just so you'll feel like you don't want to feel deprived. Right. But other than that, you're going to do great. And and wherever you live, you can talk to the people that have the restaurants, especially the ma and pa's. You know, if, if you're going to a chain, they're pretty much going to be the same everywhere. And the individual franchisee doesn't have a lot of say about what's on the menu. But if you go to a restaurant run by a family and you explain to them what you need, they're going to do that for you. When I lived in Kansas City, there's a lovely place, um, Saigon 39 on 39th Street. It's still there. And they had soups on the menu that all had chicken broth. But my daughter and I talked to Mimi, the owner, and got her to make us the soup that was just vegetable broth-based, or maybe it was just water-based. I don't know. It was really good. And it had lots of vegetables and tofu and rice noodles. And we would just call for delivery or carry out and, and say, you know, we want our soup, our special <laughs> soup. And for years, we had our soup from Saigon 39. So just be nice to people and talk to them and tell them what you need, and you can have anything you want. Another great quotation that I have in Main Street Vegan comes from Robert Cheek, who's a bodybuilder and, and a vegan. And he says, restaurants have food in them. Just ask for what you need. And so often people will go to a restaurant and they'll look at the menu. And if it doesn't have the vegan entree or whatever that they're looking for, although most places these days will have at least one or one that's easily made vegan, but you just look at the rest of the menu. What if the Swiss steak comes with grilled mushrooms? That means mm-hmm. they have mushrooms in the kitchen. What if, if some other meat dish comes with asparagus? That means there are asparagus back there. So you just say you want the salad and some grilled mushrooms and some asparagus. You know, all of a sudden, voila, you've got yes. a meal. It's a great meal, yeah. Victoria, you know, my favorite topic is names, and I was curious if you'd be all right if I asked you a few questions about your name. Of course. I know you have a great story, but let's start out. Do you know why your parents selected the name Victoria? 
Well, they didn't. So that's part of my great story. I was named Vicky. I was that... not given a full name. Huh. So, and I was a little tiny thing when I just thought that that was the most awful thing oh. to deprive a child of a full-sized name. Because, you know, I wasn't stupid. I knew all the Cathy's were really Kathleen or Catherine. I knew the Debbie's were Deborah. And here I was, Vicky, but not Victoria. And that really bothered me. So when I was in my early 20s, I had it legally changed. But what was interesting, I also found out at that time that I had been baptized as Victoria Marietta. Wow. So my baptismal certificate, it had Victoria on it all along, even though my birth certificate had always said Vicky. So now I am legally Victoria, um, religiously and secularly. <laughs> <laughs> And it just feels right. My, my daughter, too, uh, has an interesting story that I know is similar to your daughter's story. We had mm -hmm. named her Rachel Adair. That wasn't, it's interesting, if that wasn't originally what I wanted to name her. Until she was born, I'd always wanted to name her Elizabeth Adair. But as soon as I saw her, I thought, she's so sweet. I just want to give her this lovely name that speaks to me of just gentleness. And so I named her Rachel. And Adair, her middle name, is the little village in Ireland where her paternal ancestors had, had come from. And one day, she was 14, she came down from her room and she said, okay, that settles it. I'm Adair now. And I said, oh, what brought that on? She said, I just called somebody and said, this is Rachel. And they said, which one? And so as soon as she became a dare, you know, lots of times young teens will change their name and it just won't stick. She was a dare from that moment. That's really who she's supposed to be. And I feel the same way about Victoria. And what's funny is for a long time, I kind of resented Vicky. And whenever people would call me Vicky, it would kind of get my hackles up. Mm -hmm. But now I embrace Vicky. I mean, I don't encourage people to call me that, but somebody called me that the other day, and I just thought, oh, that's kind of cute. So I've come full circle with it. You're at peace with it now. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, sometimes you just have to go out there in the world and change something, even if it's your name. Some people will um, criticize you about that. Did you ever experience that? When I was very young, when I was a teenager and maybe 19, 20, sometimes people would laugh at me that I wanted this big, fancy, regal name. But I hadn't picked it. It was the big, fancy, regal name that came with my nickname that I was given. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, at the time, it, it was, see, I think it's hard enough to grow into who you are. And lots of times people will try to keep you from doing that because it makes them feel better to think that they're keeping somebody else at a lower level. And you just have to push on through anyway. And once you claim who you are, nobody gives you any problem. Because once you own it, they have nothing to argue about. It's yours. You know, That's it's sort so of true. like if, if you're saying, oh, gosh, I'd really like a Maserati, and somebody goes, yeah, right, fat chance you're going to get a Maserati. Well, what if you someday get one, 
and you're driving it around. Well, nobody's laughing then. And this is the same thing. Once you become yourself, nobody can say you're not. That's that's so good because I, I, I noticed that if I was confident in the way I told people I changed my name, they received it you know, much better than, than had I been like, oh, you know, I, I, I changed my name. I'm almost apologetic about it. <laughs> I'm sorry this is a hassle for you. <laughs> well, it's very interesting, and I'm sure you're much more the expert on this than I am, but in many cultures, it's a great rite of spiritual passage mm-hmm. to choose a name for yourself. Now, it's one thing to be given a name by your parents, and it's another thing to find your own. And there was a time when I knew people who did that, and I remember thinking, oh, for heaven's sakes, you know, why can't I just still call you Kate? But now I get it. And and, and it used to seem sometimes like when people would take a Sanskrit name or a Persian name for their religious tradition or, or whatever, it was like, oh, give me a break. No, everybody knows you're from Cleveland. But it's like, what does it matter? Your body was born in Cleveland this lifetime. How do I know what your soul wants to be called? That's your business. Right, and I'll call you whatever you know makes you happy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Do you think your name has had an impact on your life? I do. Maybe not from the outside world. But I know that the way I see myself and carry myself and present myself, I, I'm, I'm grown up when I have a full-size name. So I have one last question for you. Okay. What inspires you? <laughs> oh, golly. New York City inspires me. I know this about you. <laughs> tremendously. I, I love the city. It, it gives me great pleasure every day that I'm here. Mm. My daughter inspires me. In so many ways, I think having an adult child is just the greatest thing there is because I see her being herself and she took pieces of what I gave her and other pieces she just found someplace else. Mm -hmm. And it's so wonderful to see her making her way in the world. She's married and she's an actor and a stunt woman and a wild bird rehabilitator. Mm. They have a place with a garden in Manhattan. And if you know Manhattan, that is about as rare as having a natural waterfall and a unicorn. I mean, it's just amazing (laughs) to have land and and they they garden and they have bees and they have a toad and apple trees. I mean, it's it's incredible. Mm. So she inspires me. My spiritual connection inspires me so much. I don't know how people make it that don't believe in something. And, you know, I, I think everybody should be free to believe whatever they want or don't want. I'm just in awe that they can get through from one day to the next because I'm always calling on a spiritual connection. You know, okay, can you help me out with this? (laughs) Constantly. And then finally, I am very inspired by people who already have that connection, particularly people who are better at it than I am and who are ahead of me. I think this is particularly helpful because I do do life coaching and holistic health counseling and a lot of people are depending on me to show up and be my best self, but I need somebody that I can show up for when I'm not at my best who will be there to kind of help pull me up. So there are wonderful, wonderful women in my life who fill that bill. They're spiritual, they're funny, 
and they're just plucky. You know, they're getting through life and going for their dreams no matter what. And I need that because I don't want to be the only person I know who's doing that. Then it would feel really funny. So one person in particular that I speak to every day is my action partner. And this is really a great process if any of your listeners wanted to try it. You just find a friend or even a stranger who's willing to do this with you and you connect very briefly once a day by phone. And you just tell the other person what you're going to do that day to further your dreams and goals and aspirations. And they tell you, and that's all there is to it. And my action partner happens to be the most positive person I know. She'll Mm. say things like, have your best day ever. And at first I used to be like, oh, God, (laughs) over the top. But now I am so used to it. I mean, I understand when I say to her, how are you, Sherry? And she'll say, blessed and highly favored. But Uh she's not trying to be annoying. That's really how she feels. And that's Mm. contagious. So I want to be around people who feel that they're blessed and highly favored so that I can feel that way too. How do you pick that action partner? Well, I mean, I just lucked out with her. I mean, I didn't know that I was going to get the world's most positive person. So Mm -hmm. she's taken. I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) What's her number? If you're your best self, you're going to bring somebody else up to be their best self. Mm. So you just kind of pray about it, you know, Mm. like, okay. This is what I want in my life. And I have the right one. And, you know, the truth is, it's not like marriage. You don't have to go through a big old divorce if your action partner isn't the right one. You can just say, you know what, I don't think I want to do this anymore, and then you can find somebody else. Can it be a spouse? You know, I don't think so. Now, maybe it can be. It depends. You know, some people do have this incredible relationship with a spouse who is very, very much like them and on the same wavelength. I think in most marriages, it's that opposites attract thing. Mm -hmm. And so we find ourselves married to somebody who's just so different that if we wanted to do the action partner thing, they wouldn't or vice versa. (laughs) But, you know, if if you've got that kind of relationship, you know, give it a try. Excellent. Well, Victoria, it's been wonderful talking with you today. And uh, you're an inspiration in my life. I thank you so very much. Victoria Moran is author of over 10 books, including a soon-to-be-published book, Main Street Vegan. You can learn more about Victoria on the Namely Marley site at namelymarley.com. That's it for today's podcast. This is Marley. Thanks for joining me here today. Stay tuned for more fresh and fun name interviews in the future.